I'm so excited to have a special episode for the Sour Wars Collection. Usually we're talking with folks who are in production, post-production, other aspects of filmmaking and storytelling through audio, music, and sound. But I thought it'd be fun to have a gentleman who is the film archivist restoration supervisor, James Mikofsky. I don't remember the first time I actually uh, worked, or I don't know if I actually have ever met you in person, but I've definitely been on many emails over the years with you because you have been a staple with American Zoetrope. Just for a little context, when did you first apply for the job and what was the title then? Well, I started about 2002. I was working down at UCLA Film and Television Archive in the preservationist uh, as a preservationist down there in L.A., and uh, much like what Francis did, he didn't see himself always working in L.A. Um, my wife and I didn't want to live in L.A. all our life. We were born and raised in Northern California. So I wrote a letter up to American Zoetrope to Francis and said, you know, I would love to come up. I'm an archivist. I'd like to see your collection and see what I can do. And it just so happened. This was about 2002. We were just wrapping up Apocalypse Now uh, Redux. Uh, with uh, oh, Walter Murch and Pete Horner, who I, I think you met before on a previous podcast, uh, they went through sort of this nightmare scenario of just trying to find all the elements. Uh, and Francis did not want to go through that again. And he was going to do one from the heart and outsiders. So he asked me to at that time to come on, come on board. Uh, and help him out with the uh, with his library. So yeah, at that at that point, I was hired on as as the film archivist. For anyone who knows anything about Francis Ford Coppola and maybe his style of filmmaking, one would say it's uh, it can be you know very high energy, very involved in every aspect of filmmaking. When it comes to archiving, how would you describe his sense of the importance of this? I mean, by the time you had met him, there was you know probably close to thirty years of of films under his belt in the archive. So, what did you walk into? What was the current state of of how they managed all the archives? Uh, it's a good question because you know Francis uh, has always, from the from day one, uh, kept everything. Okay. He he was very frugal and very conscious that you know what he shot and what he put money in at a, a given time, a given film, he may use it uh, again. And he he told that to George Lucas. He said, you know, the studios were terrible at this. Make sure everything that you shot, anything that you bought, keep it. And and to his credit, George kept everything. Francis kept everything. May not have been well organized, but it was there and accessible. You might have had to go through a mountain of stuff. It kind of looked like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, the big warehouse where he, all, all the great uh, treasures were kept. And that's kind of where we found it. Um, it was in Napa as a big warehouse with a mountain of material, not in the best conditions. And so that's sort of what I inherited and sort of you know, had this wonderful, vast treasure. But I had to organize it, catalog it and get a proper film vault uh, established up in Napa. So what were the things that kind of surprised you, at least when you're going through the material? What what things do you think were you know captured for... Uh, you know, historic reasons, but then ultimately never really had a home. Do you feel like, because I remember obviously watching Apocalypse Now and seeing what his, you know, the, the documentary that came out of that project, like I think they were pretty conscious of 
capturing what was happening on set and some of the creative discussions like some of these really amazing footage that i've seen over the years is you know like you said walter merch and francis sitting around a table and discussing creative process so what were the things that caught you off guard that that you were surprised to find yeah, I, when it's not just the film you shot, what uh, he shot, you know, all the B, B negative, all the stuff that didn't make it in the film was re- retained. But Francis was very savvy. He knew that all these studios were hungry for value added material, extras. And instead of a pub, uh, hiring a publicist, a publicist or uh, someone to do the EPK that a studio would normally have, he knew that he could create that. He can have control of it and sell that back to the studio. So he made sure that in every film he had, maybe uh, Eleanor, his wife, would shoot the documentary or the behind-the-scenes starting uh, back on Apocalypse, which later turned into Hearts of Darkness. So every film he made sure that uh, he had someone on staff that shot all the behind the um, uh, footage uh, background material. And that is an enormous amount of material beyond what was just normally shot for, for a film. This is a world of hidden mics and two-way mirrors, a world where nothing is private. You think we can do this? Later in the week. Harry Cole is an expert. The best there is. Let me tell you something about Harry Cole. The best bar none. I'll drink to that. Best what? The best bugger on the West Coast. What about me? He can bug anybody, anytime, anywhere. Something that I, I thought was really interesting was the history that American Zotrop has had with the understanding of reissuing as the formats have progressed. Going back here, one of the reasons why I was excited to talk with you now is because a week ago, I guess today is March 26, a week ago on the 20th, there was going to be a screening of the conversation at uh, the Berkeley Art Museum. And I was really excited because I've never seen the film screened, uh, you know, in any form in any form besides maybe what I had on a DVD. I've found that when I look back at the release history of all of the films, it's been at every step. There's been an understanding that the mono mix is not the best mix and that there's a 5-1 that can be done. And I think, you know, obviously like the conversation was one example, but how would you describe also kind of the care and attention that everyone takes when it comes to understanding like technology can now offer more of Francis's and like the artist's vision? Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting question. I actually just uh, I have conversations with people online that are, are very upset that Walter remixes films uh, and puts it in 5-1. And, you know, that's we, we, one of the things you never can please anyone. But for us, and as an archivist, I make sure that we preserve what Walter had done in 1974 uh, for the mono release. That's very important to us, historically important, because that was an achievement in itself uh, and should be heard and studied. Uh, but Francis also and Walter always knows that he, he has to have maybe one foot in the past and one uh, foot in the future. If, uh, for instance, Apocalypse Now was the first film theatrical to be uh, released in six tracks uh, for the 70 millimeter release. And we just did a new Atmos mix for Apocalypse. It felt right and it felt appropriate for, for Apocalypse because it was that first time you could hear sort of the 360 degree pan of the helicopters and that ghost helicopter sequence in the very beginning of Apocalypse. And so now with Atmos, you now have that 
those overhead speakers where you get the helicopters flying over and it just felt right. They wanted that immersive experience in 1979. Well, 40 years later, you, you can enhance that immersive experience. So, uh, but we, again, as I said, one foot in the past, we still preserve that original six track and we what was heard in 79. So we offer those flavors. So we try to appease the, those film fanatics that want to hear that original release, but also try to offer something new to to uh, an audience, a new audience that that sort of expects that. So we want we want to make sure we're pushing our films to a, to a new audience. And how would you describe, I guess, your work today? You know, here in 2020, technology with you know when I think about DCPs and sharing films, I remember when Apocalypse Now, this Final Cut came out, some of the guys down at um, Bad Robot wanted to screen it, and I remember just connecting them with you. And it's so easy as offering a DCP key now where it's like we're not shipping reels of film around. But can you describe now kind of the analog versus digital world of doing the type of work you do of mastering and versioning and keeping track of of all the different assets? Yeah, it is kind of interesting because even with Apocalypse, now we have the Dolby Vision DCP. We have the regular sort of P3 DCP, the standard DCP. So it, it has... And then an Atmos or a 5.1. So it, it has increased the amount of versions that we had, whereas the 35 millimeters, like, that's that's it. But, you know, 35 millimeter was darn heavy and expensive to ship from places. So in a lot of ways, it's a little more versatile to get uh, an audience to see the film uh, with the DCP. And, of course, wherever. I think you mentioned Bad Robot. Well, a couple weeks after that, their crew down in, in Australia wanted to see it because they heard their great experience uh, at Bad Robot in, in L.A. So we shipped it down there. So we were able to get a, more of an audience to, to appreciate it. Whereas now my 35 millimeter prints they're all like lock on locking uh, under been vaulted because I don't want them out. And it's really hard to find a good projectionist or they just get damaged. And who knows if I can get get money to repair them or, or get a new print struck, you know, and I we were just running into a, a problem with conversation. The, the stock that we, we, we have a limited ability of stock these days, uh, the stock that I made the prints 20 years ago is not available. So you get a it's slightly variation in the color, the original color. And it's just where we're at 20 years. We just don't have the ability of, uh, of that same stock anymore. The DCP, that doesn't vary. You know, yeah. the color is the color. So I feel what I see in the studio or the lab is what you get in, in any theater. So I feel you get a better kind of repli uh, uh, replication of, of the color. Uh, and, and the experience that that Francis approved in the lab. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Who's the commanding officer here? Ain't you?
So with that being said, like with the technical understanding that we have now, restoration work and what can be done, you know, when it comes to color correction and sound mixing, with the recent re-release for um, Apocalypse Now with the final cut, can you give a little perspective on what the restoration or like, you know, how things were scanned for the Blu-ray version versus uh, 1080 versus a 4K? Like Apocalypse Now is very special. You mentioned the sound. Now there's more low end. There's Atmos. When it comes to picture, besides re-scanning it, what else, what are the other considerations? Yeah, with the Blu-ray release, what I wanted to do was about 10 years ago when I did it uh, for the Blu-ray. And we used the IP at that time, which is one step, one generation away from the original camera negative. And the reason we had done that at that time was the condition of the original camera negative was was not in a, in a condition to be scanned. And it would have taken a, a huge effort to, to get it back into the that condition to get it scanned and the technology for restoration for digital restoration was really not there uh we've come a long way in our digital tools for restoration so at that time we did a 4k transfer off the ip 10 years later we felt okay time's come the tools the software the scanning technology is better uh we, we had time to get the negative in proper shape to get it uh, ready to be scanned. And so that's why we sort of took that path. It's sort of, and why we, we revisit these things. Uh, sometimes time makes it available to that we, uh, with tools and technology that wasn't available 10 years ago. You spend time with your family? Sure I do. Good. Because a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. You look terrible. I want you to eat. I want you to rest well, and a month from now, this Hollywood big shot's gonna give you what you want. It's too late. They start shooting in a week. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. Well, how do you differentiate maybe something like, well, you guys did for Apocalypse Now and what the potential could be for even like uh, for Godfather? Uh, well, certainly that's on our slate. The 50th is coming up. Yeah. So we are talking about uh, there is a discussion to do something off that. You know, that Paramount uh, about 10 years ago, we did a 4K restoration. Bob Harris uh, was involved with that, who uh, has worked with us before. He's done Lawrence of Arabia and uh, My Fair Lady. And he worked with Francis on a restoration 10 years ago. So we're going to go off that that restoration uh and use a lot of that material uh, for the 50th uh, but we're gonna look but paramount there's a discussion of what more can be done uh with that you know that hadn't been done 10 years ago and as i had said in the last part technology has changed uh from 10 years ago so uh, there are thir certain things that couldn't been done there could be done now so paramount's making that assessment uh we recently were working on uh, godfather three that we we uh, were working on and showed in Lyon, france uh that francis is tinkering with you know and francis is always one that his art never sort of gets locked in any point in time he likes to revisit things you know and, and time lets things pass he's like well you know i, I have something more to say and maybe as as redux came about he's like you know people thought the 79 version was weird. I wanted to add more, but I was like, uh, I can't go there. Uh, but it took him 
30 years uh, or 20 years to come back to it and says, okay, maybe people have accepted it. Maybe I can challenge, maybe I can put all the stuff in there and, 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 and see how people react to it. Uh, and so he kind of pushes his things and he, he, he kind of likes to let it sit there and then come back to after 10, 20 years and, and, and see if he could do something different with it. Mm. Something that um, has always been really fascinating to me is that the history of the Bay Area filmmaking community is one that it just continues to show what these artists care about. And something that I, I never quite understood the foresight, people setting up their own shops, obviously like setting up Zoetrope in San Francisco and then then moving it up into Napa and the wine country. But what, what was the role, um, which I think is your office, the Columbus Tower, the Sentinel Building? How, what, what does that property serve as? And is that just administrative or what's... Yeah. It, it now, I mean, that that building has uh, changed over time to be administrative. But then if a project came in, we would clear out floors and set up uh, production offices or post-production. Uh, when a film went away, we'd probably then get set up with other tenants or a Zoetrope's administrative office would go in. So it, it just went with the flow. And that was what Francis' uh, mantra was. It's like it, things shouldn't... Uh, should be move easy. His army should be moving very quickly. So whatever the situation throws at it, people it could just be flexible. And that's his always his sort of his model. Uh, he could set up shop anywhere. Uh, you know, and this is a problem with Hollywood. You know, they're entrenched and they're ingrained in their studio and there's their offices, but uh, you throw them a, a curve, they don't know how to react to it. You know, it, it takes some committees. It takes meetings. It was like he wants to act quickly. Uh, and that's sort of wh wh what he liked to establish with, with Zoetrope. He could be anywhere. Uh, and, you know, if he's going to have a movie come in, he'll just cl clear out the office or two floors of it and set up production. And we're in production the next week, you know, uh, by restoration. Uh, I haven't been doing work in, in the Sentinel building. I do it in my home. Uh, we, we don't need a, a lab to do the cleanup and the, uh, the restoration. I could do that anywhere these days. Uh, so uh, that's what Francis has always instilled on us is to be flexible and, 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 and not be locked into one frame of thinking. You know, Francis is so incredibly unique. And I feel like his model of setting up his own studio obviously was replicated with what Lucas did. Now we see it, you know, like I said, uh, you know, Peter Jackson or James Cameron or J.J. Abrams, these folks who have a... Rod Rodriguez within his yes. studio in Texas. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, what do you admire just about the flexibility and, and just the relationship that you have to your work and how you interact with your directors? Because now, I mean, Zoetrope represents a bunch of titles from many filmmakers beyond, including his family. So what does that allow you and, and why has it kept you so excited and I guess engaged in the work that you're doing? Well, what's been always fun in the last 20 years is like there, there's never I've never been just doing one thing, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, you're the archivist. But, you know, now now we're in production. I need you to be a production coordinator or, you know, we just wrapped up the film and yeah, I really didn't care how our, our distributor did our last film. Why don't you distribute the film? I'm like, well, you know, Francis, I really don't know how to do that. <laughs> he says, well. Hey, go go forward. I mean, I mean, I, I, what what can happen? I was like, well, a lot could happen. <laughs> you know, we could fail. And he was like, eh, uh, I've been in worse situations. So let let's just do it and see see if it works. If it doesn't, you know. So that that ability to to give you a long leash to experiment, to try something new, uh, 
it's, it's been fun. It's been ter- terrorizing at times. You know, it's, 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 it, you, you feel like I'm in over my head, but and that, that's with Francis. He's always, as an artist, felt in over his head. And, and today he considers himself, he's not like a, he always hates the term when he goes over to Europe, the master class. He's like, I don't, I'm a student of film. You know, I still learn and I, I don't want to seem like I, I, I don't know it all. There's no way you can know it all in the film business. That just, that means that you're sort of locked in one way of thinking. It's like, I just want to study. I want to try things new. I want to keep failing, you know, and that's kind of his whole uh, uh, mantra at, at Zoetrope. Of course, we can't fail too often <laughs> because we still have to pay the bills, but uh, hopefully there's enough uh, successes and all that. It's incredible to look at the landscape today and where it was back then. Like we're talking about distribution of films, how things are presented. What is now evenly more apparent to you with just where things are going with streaming and, and whatnot? Do you guys own the material? Like what's we the do. relationship? Okay. We do. We own our library and we've licensed, we have a license deal uh, with Lionsgate who represents our library here in North America, Studio Canal for foreign. Uh, the challenges is library titles. You know, the heyday of catalogs were DVDs. Uh, we we did very well during that time. We have not been able to really replicate that in the streaming. Uh, these things kind of get wrapped up in a blanket deal. So it's just, you know, people think, you know, you click on a title, uh, on a, we get the money. We don't. Uh, that just sort of gets somehow a calculation is made, you know. So that's been challenging to make the library sort of, um, be profitable or at least make money uh, to keep, keep keep the library preserve keep these titles preserved and, and res- uh, restored for the next because we you know, we have to keep doing these and and next technology comes out we still have to keep pushing these titles onto the next format you know. What is it like to work with Francis Coppola when you do have that history and there's obviously like this inherent trust and understanding of how each other's work? So like, I guess, how would you describe your relationship with Francis now versus when you first started working for his company? Well, I, of course, you know, when I first started with anyone, I mean, you're very nervous and you call him Mr. Coppola. Right, like, yeah. don't, you know, at some point he's like, I don't want to, don't call, please call me Francis and all. Uh, it's so it's it's he's very comfortable he has this instant trust with with people he 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 is not one that is you know he's he's demanding you know what he wants as an artist but he's not going to say you you know have to do it this way he wants you to have that ability to explore who you are and how he gets it done for him so knowing that you have this ability to find your own way to get a project done uh, without him over your head. He's not, he's never one to micromanage any, anyone. And, and that's just the thing. Francis always understood that, that his crew is equally as important, you know, as the, as the director. And he gave his crew, uh, he works with Dean Tavaleras or Vittorio, all those wonderful people. He was able to let them have their vision to make his film, you know? So he, he knew that this was a collaborative effort, and that's always has been his thing. We're the we're his family. Yeah, so, something that um, has happened probably you know here in the past ten years is his return to directing with uh, you know stuff like Tetro and Twixt. It's something now like the relationship that that he has with filmmaking is one of you, you don't need to have the commercial success. You just need to tell these stories because he's been working with them for so long. But when a filmmaker moves forward and continues to create work, how, how do you describe the difference of how you guys are handling the new pictures versus some, some of these bigger productions? Yeah, 
and it's interesting coming from the film archivist uh, uh, position. It was kind of easy to make that jump into post production because uh, uh, the the two titles sort of are mutually the same. Our, our needs are basically the same. Uh, I knew what I needed to preserve. I know what my deliverables were. Uh, so it was easy to kind of fall into that role as a post-production supervisor. Um, I may not have been as technically minded as a lot of post-production supervisors were, but I, like Francis, had a great crew and trusted them. Uh, and we sort of learned together and made that leap into uh, from going from the archive into working on his current films. Um, you know, and then sort of, I think Tetra was the last film we did. And then afterwards, like Twix was digital. So those those needs, those demands of assets sort of changed in the how to manage that the data. Uh, instead of physical assets, it's now managing data and how to restore that. Or actually, we're going back to a lot of that material uh, from 10 years ago that were on LTO tape. Oh, so okay. it's been kind of a, a learning curve of how to deal. It was easier to think about handling film assets, but now digital is kind of a lot more of a concern and kind of a harder thing to get a handle on. How do you describe your team today versus when you guys first started out in terms of just the sheer number of staff that were on hand? Because I guess what the question I really want to ask is what is it like to run a production company for a company that has a deep archive? How do you describe your support team then and what is it like now? Yeah, you know, in the very beginning I started, we actually had a post-production department. We had a DVD lab uh, and we had a much larger company. And unfortunately, the way of the business in San Francisco, uh, we lost a lot of labs. We, we lost our company and we sort of kind of contracted to just a couple core people. And I was lucky to be able to just stay on and, and maintain the archive until Francis started working on his film Youth Without Youth. And then things just sort of grew from there that it, it uh, more projects started coming out of that. And a new crew, I have a great editor, Robbie, we've uh, uh, Robbie Schaefer, uh, Colin Guthrie, people who were always kind of there in Zoetrope, but then didn't come on till, uh, till Youth Without Youth and has still been with me. And a lot of people that are still part of the Zoetrope that didn't didn't continue on are still there, like Pete Horner, who still you know works with Walter and he still works over at the Stag. Those people are still in our community. And anytime we had a project, if I needed a mixer, I'd or I call Richard Beggs or or Pete and said I need help on this project, and we'd start back up. So we 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 became sort of. Even though they weren't working under the zoetrope umbrella, they didn't go far, and our family could come back together when we needed them. Mm. Just in the past few years, we've seen a lot of releases uh, and from Sofia and, and Gia Coppola, um, even Eleanor releasing Paris Can't, Can Wait in 2016. What is it? I mean, it looks like now, I mean, 2020 filmmaking is, you know, when I hear about these amazing directors who can't get funding, can't get the support or things are getting canceled left and right. How do you describe, you know, supporting the family members who are making these films and how you guys are navigating just the realities of being a filmmaker in this world? Yeah, well, I, I would say it's not as easy even for Gia to get funded. I know her current project has been having a difficult time getting financing. But what what is 
great about us is that we have an infrastructure. So we can at least uh, a assist productions or, or our own internal productions uh, to help with that. And then we have our own crew. So that helps alleviate, alleviate a little bit of, of those those problems, you know. And, and that's kind of why Francis wanted the studio uh, and didn't want to get rid of the equipment or, 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 or rent somewhere else. Uh, if he invested every film, he put a little bit of money into his studio. So hopefully next time it gets a little easier for the next film uh, to make. It, it was incredible to look at some of the extra features that were on the conversation um, of just kind of being a fly on the wall and seeing how he runs his set and also his relationship to his production crew. What's been uniquely different, you know, he invested in dubbers and and photo um, flatbeds or when he was working on Pox. Now, like, he's always been someone to invest in his production. Well, what are the pros and what are maybe the cons of, you know, someone who's, you know, looking to make this into their career? Why should that be considered? Yeah, well, the pros definitely, I mean, if we have the tools, it helps them roll into the next film so we can keep the momentum going with projects, uh, which, you know, it helped in, in Outsiders when we, uh, he first established his mixing facility up in Napa uh, and, and bought a mixing board up there. That helped him do Rumblefish. And then it's just sort of snowballed from there. Like the downside of that is it does take a bit of crew. I mean, we needed the three engineers and then the equipment needed maintenance uh, they, and kept main, being maintained or it became antiquated. Uh, it, it became that so much of that of being a problem in 2000 when we turned digital. With digital, Things became out of date quite quickly, and to retool every production just became very, very expensive. So, um, in the analog world, it was expensive with just the sheer labor of just having engineers. The equipment we had for probably 20, 25 years, and they, it still ran very well. But then turning to digital with uh, Pro Tools, all that stuff became very expensive. Avid systems, all very expensive. And you couldn't keep it <laughs> for very long without having to do new updates. Mm. So something that I really wanted to ask you about, which is kind of what I hinted at, that there was going to be this this screening of the conversation. And before, when I first reached out to you about doing this podcast, my question was, was like, well, how are you going to screen it? What was it? And it was obviously, like you said, it was a 5-1 mix that had been done by Walter a while back. A DCP that was... 10 was it a 1080 what was it uh, the dcp that's currently available now yeah. is is an hd yes dcp uh we did not we need we still do and this is kind of what we need to go back to for for the 50th anniversary of, uh, of conversation is to make a, re a 4k restoration a digital restoration of conversation so it was easier for us to uh, use the film restoration that we did a few years ago uh, with Walter's new mix that no one has actually has heard in theaters. For the conversation, what do you find is uniquely different about this film? Because it was, what was the name? It was the Directors Guild or the Directors Group under that production company. It wasn't a Zotrope. It was a... It was a Director's Company. Director's Company, right. And I remember like yeah, when the yeah. film starts out, it introduces Director's Company. And I was like, oh, what's that? And then I, I researched, you know, just the history of the three pictures that they got out of that deal. The conversation, it wasn't commercially successful. It was a lower, but I think it was a $1.9 million film. Yeah. But yeah. it's become something that I think when I was going through college and my teachers were saying the conversation is uh, is just a triumph in filmmaking. What, what is your takeaway from this title? It is a title that these, these it's like, it goes back to Rain People. Rain People and Conversation, these are the films that Francis wanted to make. He wrote, he directed, he produced them. And those are the films that he really were personally invested in. 
they were hard for him because, you know, they didn't have mass appeal. Uh, thankfully, maybe they got some critical notice. Uh, Rain people, uh, Francis actually told me this uh, recently that, you know, Rain people got him Godfather. Okay. It won a major award in Spain at uh, San Sebastian Film Festival. And if it didn't get that recognition, Paramount wouldn't consider him uh, for, for The Godfather. That, that gave him notice that he could appeal internationally and allowed him to sort of that door open uh, to, for The Godfather. But, so, but, but Godfather is an interesting thing too. It's, it's not a film he wanted to do. Yeah, you know, right. it, it was yeah. George saying, you gotta make the film because our film is going, our company is going broke and you, you need to do it uh, to save the film company. So he has these detours in his life away from the films that he's always wanted to do. And I feel that the recent round of films that he's, uh, he's kind of gone back to those tradition of the rain people or the conversation. Mm. Some of the stories that I think kind of get buried sometimes are some of the foresight, which I mentioned before he has, one of them was obviously like with apocalypse now with what um, he wanted to do with the soundtrack. I guess the, the story of it originally not being something that was, I mean, of the five, one format didn't exist. He wanted Tamita, the composer, the Japanese composer to do this. It's just when I, when I think about his involvement and his thumb, just like George Lucas had in filmmaking and where it is today, it seems that there's some, something, some special one whispering in his ear because it seems like as crazy as those ideas were back then that's what filmmaking would become now i mean i think i see some of those quotes that he's had over the years where he was like he had the foresight of you know watching movies on your phone and whatnot uh he he, he certainly sort of projected that you know everybody will be able to uh have a device that you'll you'll be able to edit you know some eight-year-old girl could be working on the masterpiece on her on on some small technology you know I, i think he said that during the hearts of darkness and uh, he, he's always had that, um, that vision of what technology, he knows technology can bite you in the ass and, and sometimes his worst enemy, but it, it's sort of being on the knife's edge. Uh, and he's always willing to be on that edge. Uh, and, and as an artist, you know, he's, it, it's amazing to me that Francis can just be carefree. He doesn't, he doesn't sort of care about, I could lose it all. You know, uh, I, but I love I love being able to push the art form uh, further. Uh, one from the heart, and what they were able to do with editing and, and and behind the scenes, and that was was revolutionary at that time, and led to to how we edit films today. Um, but you know, he sank so much money into that that sort of hurt the company. But he, as an artist, he was like, "This is what I want to do," you know. <laughs> so. Uh, it, it, that that liberty, that freedom of an artist, I, I, I respect for of Francis to be able to do that. And not too many people would 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 just be that sort of cavalier, I guess, or carefree. When it comes to all your digital assets, what is it like now having a digital asset library for a library like this? How, how do you guys manage it? What are some of the kind of tools and things that you found have been really helpful for you? Well, uh, we started. Our digital archive about 10, 12 years ago, uh, in-house doing all our backups. We couldn't store things on hard drives. Um, they, they had a very small shelf life. So we found uh, things called uh, LTO, LTO uh, sure. linear tape. It's magnetic tape, yeah. And that became very laborious. It was very – that needed a whole department of, uh, or a person to keep managing that data in the amount of tapes. So we later migrated to a company. We found a company that took on that responsibility. And and now – but 
this is this is the problem is like there's not really a great solution uh that company couldn't make a deal uh make a profit out of it and so they've fallen by the wayside so we've had to find another uh which is this very scary thing um but and the the expense of it it's not cheaper than renting vault space and keeping uh my film assets in a vault in some ways it's more expensive so in some ways uh digital assets have become far more expensive and sometimes i'm paying for apocalypse i'm paying the vault space for the film elements and vault space digital vault space to protect the digital assets of it the same thing so now i'm paying twice so it's it's been a sort of a hard little uh equation to 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 figure out and in some ways you know it may even be cheaper just to go back and if i keep these things properly scanned and and vaulted in the right conditions, it's sometimes cheaper to even just go back to that material and redo it when you need to. So, uh, and you find in situations that when you go back to these digital assets, oh well, the technology's changed. We need it in a different format, uh, so we'll have to go back and scan it again. So, but I've been paying all that money for the last ten years to maintain it. So, it, it there it is not a very e- easy road in this time with 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 the digital. Uh, storage and preservation it's it's the type of thing which is uh you know you went the jump from standard def to hd hd now higher 2k 4k 6 8k we don't really know what the, what the limit might be it's just like we feel like moore's law continues to show its face and we start to run into some of the same problems we experienced but just in different shapes and forms what is it about maybe today's technology where you could say atmos can't get any better. How could we ever get any better than you know? Yeah, the, the I, I have. That. I had this with Apocalypse. You know, we got a 4K scan. Uh, we have at Atmos. We have the original 5.1. We found all the original uh, material that was thought to be lost. We found and done it. What more can be done? And that we we feel. I feel more comfortable saying, you know, we're at a very good, comfortable spot that we preserved it. Then I wouldn't have said that 10, 15 years ago because. You know, it was a standard def or uh, we were in DVD and Blu-ray, but Blu-ray, we know it was not getting all the true information there. So there, we knew we could get further. But I feel 4K, you know, I've seen scans in 8K versus 4K, and there's not much more. You know, there's very few things that uh, people never saw that information, you know. So um, I feel we're at a good juncture with technology and, and, and what we're doing at the library now than what, what we did. 20, 20 years ago, you know. You have so. to, I mean, you have to imagine at some point someone's going to be like, "We've squeezed this lemon dry. There's no more to squeeze." Yeah, I, 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 I you know, every time I say that, though, I'm not going to walk because every time I say it, there's something new, you know, and then yeah. I was like, "Oh, we, we, we didn't think about this," but I feel we're at a very good juncture in in in, in technology and where we are. So yeah. We hope we'll like, see because I, 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 you know as, as a restoration, it's like there's so many other titles that I think we need to put money into. You keep putting money in the same title over. It's like I kind of want to slow down because there's all these other titles that need to need attention. Mm. It's a really unique line of work, being that you do, and you have a very interesting background, like you were describing the type, the, the wide range of work you're doing. So, what can you say it is like to be in this type of work with all the the information that's out there? Well, I do. Uh, the restoration sort of came about doing it hands-on since we did Cotton Club Encore about 12, uh, no, 10 years ago when we started that. And we were seeing, you know, if we were able to control the stuff in-house, it's my time. It's 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 a stuff I can do on my own time and take it 
too pristine, you know. But when you're at a lab, you're sort of watching the clock, <laughs> you know. And you know, every every hour is a hundred dollars, you know. Great, it's like, and you have to sort of like, okay, I have to put a cap on it, and we have to live with that. But I I, I don't have that pressure with this, and that sort of brought on the necessity. Was like, why don't we we can do this? We have the skills. I we, I've sat with these artists. I sat with the, in the labs, and I know what what they're doing. They're great, talented people. But we don't we don't want to have this sort of axe over the head of like, OK, we, we can't afford anything more. And I don't know if that's necessarily right for the film. So it sort of came and developed to do do the restorations in house. And we were able to control the costs and, and, and deal with it with ourselves on our own time. So that's been a fun adventure. And but it's it's taken a while because, you know, we started with Dementia 13, Francis's first film. Um, and then we just did Tucker and we slowly built up and this, okay, I think we got the skill set to do it. Let's, we can tackle apocalypse, <laughs> you know, so. For even apocalypse now with this final cut, how long ago did that, the first conversation come up when you wanted to go about the final cut version? Well, we started the restoration on the 79 version and redux about two years ago. And it wasn't until about, I want to say we released it in 2019. It was probably six months before we released it or seven months before that Francis is like, you know, I'm thinking I haven't said enough about it. Let's try to do some redux is too long. Yeah. That's everything in the kitchen sink. 79. Well, that was a compromise version with the studio. And, you know, that wasn't completely what I wanted. So let's try to find that happy medium between the two. And, and so he came out of a final cut with that in mind is like I still had something to say and I want so one of the hybrid one of the films I wanted to ask you about was uh, Lost in Translation uh, there's only I guess the Blu-ray probably the theatrical release is, is there any interest to re-release that yes it's not a title we own though that's okay. under universal um, and it seems like it's getting to be about the time to to redo that and that's a conversation we need to have with with universal um, certainly but it's easier when we own these things that we could drive that. But then when it's another studio, that's a whole other conversation. And that's a little bit of slower conversation. Yeah. But because um, they have their slate of films in their calendar and you have to fit that project in this particular calendar. So it, it tends to be a longer conversation. Yeah. And when it's right for them. Obviously, Francis founded it, but Roman and Sophia, his children, now are the owners. What does that mean? And what does that, how does that play in? Because I'm, I'm sure, I mean, Francis is still, it's still his company, right? Yeah. Uh, Francis is the, uh, the, the deals, the, the CEO of the, the company or uh, in, in spirit, but he runs the company, uh, manages it. But his, his kids there are the idea that someday, you know, uh, when Francis wants to uh, release the reins and say I had enough that that that's there for them you know to to manage so but you know it's been Francis's company and Sophia has uh, her own projects Roman has his own projects his own studio down in LA so they're doing their own things um, but while Francis is still very actively involved with with zoetrope so it's it feels that you know they're all in their own good place at the moment <laughs> and for anyone who is interested in doing the type of work you do like i said it's not just one tool set i feel like your historical knowledge technical knowledge your love and passion for filmmaking it must have been something that you've 
grown into? I don't know. Like, how would you describe the you know the type of work that you're doing that you love so much? Because there's so many different skill sets that you're pulling from. There's a lot of skill sets. I, I but I feel like I, I I'm what's the saying? I'm a master of none. Okay. <laughs> you know, I I I I feel you know as many times like I said earlier, I, I feel in over my head, but you know. I love it. There's so much interesting as like, this has been a great experience. I I'm, I'm learning as I go. I, I can't say that, uh, I, I, I'm a master. Like I said earlier too, Francis hates the term of like master class. I'm a student and I'm studying as I go. I, and this has been a great journey. Hmm, That's awesome. James, any any last things you want to add, things that people should check out, be aware of, whether it's American Zootrope or stuff that you've been coming across in our uh, quarantine lifestyle that we've now adapted to? <laughs> well, all I could say is we're going to make it through. And when we make it through, come and see the conversation because it's <laughs> the damn thing is, is we, we've been after this for about 10 or 15 years with Rialto. And the moment they decide to release it, <laughs> It was right smack dab in this. So uh, it, it's, I, I, I hope people, we got great articles and great press that just came out in the last couple of weeks. So I hope when people can finally go outside and enjoy the world again, that they will want to go back into movie theaters. And I hope they come to see the conversation. Obviously for people who want to find out more, uh, zootrope.com is a great place to go. Anywhere else, James, that people should uh, keep an eye on and track of what you guys are up to? Uh, we, of course, Gia is making a new project. Keep an eye on that. And Sophia's new film will be coming out soon. So, well, there's more, more to offer from Zoetrope. Fantastic. James, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. 